0: Today's Xinjiang, tomorrow's Hong Kong. Today's Hong Kong, tomorrow's Taiwan. The popular slogan among Hong Kong's pro-democracy protesters refers to the oppression of the Muslim Uyghur minority in the north of China. And it makes clear that anger is growing at the heavy hand of Beijing around the country's periphery. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, is there a future for democracy in China? My guest knows the personal cost of speaking out all too well. Yang Chang survived forced labour during the Cultural Revolution. She went on to become the first person from Communist China to earn a doctorate from a British university. Her first book, Wild Swans, an account of her family's experiences, sold over 13 million copies in 37 languages. But after publishing a biography of Chairman Mao, her work was banned in her homeland and she can no longer travel freely there. Her latest book, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, tells the story of three remarkable women who grew up in a brief period of democracy in China in the 1920s and how they shaped their country's history. Yang Chang, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, big sister, little sister, red sister, these are three women who are very well known within China, a sort of modern Chinese political fairy tale. But readers outside the country might not be so familiar with them. Who
1: were they? Well, their family name is Song. And the three sisters, big sister is called Ailing. Little sister is Mei Ling. And she later became known as Madame Chiang Kai-shek. She was the first lady of mainland China for 22 years, until her husband was driven out of mainland China to Taiwan by Mao and the communists. Red sister Qingling married Sun who who is known throughout the Chinese-speaking world as the father of China or the father of Republican China, because he was the first man to promote republicanism. And so these three sisters were extraordinary, first of all, because they made these extraordinary marriages. Big sister Ailing made herself one of the richest women in China. Her husband was Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and the finance minister for over a decade. But these women were also political figures in their own rights, and Red Sister Qingling became a committed Leninists, communists, and she rose to become Mao's vice chair. So she was right in the center of the communist leadership. Little Sister Mei Ling, as Madame Chiang Kai-shek, became one of the best-known women in the world during the Second World War. She went to America, she addressed the Congress, she, there was a standing ovation of, of four minutes and various other things. She was the first lady of Taiwan, so they were really quite uh, famous in their own rights. And what do you think drives
0: them? They, they come from, obviously, a background of great self-belief. They go off to America, and I think some are sort of more Americanized than others and adopt English more as their preferred language. But it's still quite extraordinary. They sound a bit like the Chinese Kennedys. I mean, what drives them to want such influence?
1: Well, I think they weren't actually seeking power when they made their marriages. Red Sister Ching Ling married Sun Yat-sen when Sun Yat-sen was actually down and out. Sun Yat-sen, although was a man who first promoted republicanism, and he actually, he was against democracy and he wanted to make himself the president of Republican China. And he didn't want a democratic process which China embarked on at the beginning of the republic. And so as a result, he was voted out. He wasn't a political figure when Qingling, Red Sister, met him. But then Sun Yat-sen then brought in the Soviet Russians, who brought Lenin through the connect- his friendship with Lenin, and he then managed to build an army with Russian funding and organization and advice. So Qingling, Red Sister, actually was her heroine was Joan of Arc. I mean, she wanted to sacrifice herself for a cause. I mean, she saw Sun Yat-sen as a tragic hero because he'd lost power, his father of China, but lost power.
0: And they end up on different sides of the political divide, but not so much the way we might imagine it in the West of communism and anti-communism. It's really sort of communism and nationalism. Could you draw us a very brief picture of, the, of their politics? I mean, we, we, we understand the, the Red Sister, I think, where her uh, loyalties then lie strongly towards Marxist-Leninism. What about the others?
1: Well, actually, the other two were strongly anti-communists, and that's how they came together with Chiang Kai-shek and with little sister Mei Ling marrying Chiang Kai-shek in December 1927, because after Sun Yat-sen died in 1925, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the military chief of the Nationalists, split from the Russians and the Chinese communists, and he he built a nationalist government that was fiercely anti-communist. Big sister Eileen was passionately anti-communist, and which influenced the little sister Mei-Ling. So both of them were anti-communist, and the sisters were torn apart by different ideologies.
0: And how did that manifest in their relationships? Did they cut each other off? Did they try to win each other over?
1: Actually, their relationships were estranged. Um, Their mother, who was also anti-communist, actually cut off Red Sister, Qingling, when Qingling went into exile in 1927 in Russia and then in Berlin. But then the war against Japan brought them together in 1937 because there was a united front between the communists and the nationalists. But of course, once the war ended in 1945, the sisters became split again and they embraced two antagonistic political camps that were fighting this deadly war. And then they never saw each other again. But sort of personally, the emotionally, they remained very fond of each other. And in a way, they were de- dependent on each other, almost politically. Red Sister Qingling was able to survive Chiang Kai-shek's regime, being a fierce critic of Chiang Kai-shek, thanks to the protection of Little Sister Mei-Ling and Big Sister Ai-Ling. Whereas Chiang Kai-shek claimed legitimacy from Sun yat so. The sisters were the Chiang Kai-shek, and her, his regime also didn't want to didn't want to cut themselves completely off from Red Sister.
0: And how are the three remembered in China today?
1: Red Sister Qingling, obviously is praised as the mother of China. Of modern China, and the other two sisters, the anti-communist sisters, in my days when I was in China, were sort of not pleasant figures. And I grew up with the story that Mei Ling took a bath in milk every day to keep her skin fresh. And once one of our teachers, How very bourgeois, very <laughs> well, it was outrageous. Well, regarded as as outrageous because milk was considered the most nutritious food for babies, and no Chinese at that time had access to milk except the elite Mm-hmm. And so here was this woman bathing herself in milk, and that was uh, regarded as totally outrageous. And one of our teachers attempted to address this myth, and when they muttered that, "You know, do you really think bathing in milk is pleasant?" And of course, he soon ended up being condemned as a rightist. But today, the sisters, the anti-communist sisters, are treated with good press because Beijing wants to bring Taiwan into its fold and bring particular nationalist party into its fold. So it's sort of politically motivated the propaganda about them.
0: Let's talk about your own work. It's still not available in China, am I right uh, about that? I and mean, tell us about the the journey of your work from the
1: Wild Swans onwards in terms of your homeland. After, as I said, you know, after Wild Swans, I wrote the biography of Mao, and that work was published in two thousand and five, and that ended my freedom to travel in China because it was much more sort of direct against. Mao. And Mao today, you know, his corpse is still lying in the center of uh, Tiananmen Square for people to worship. His portrait is still on Tiananmen, and his face is on every banknote. Obviously, my book is regarded as a big threat to that image of Mao.
0: Is it widely read, even though it's not officially I,
1: Widely known. I mean, I translated the book into Chinese, of course. And um, of course, uh, briefly, when the book was not allowed into China, but people scanned the books into the computer for, to share with other people, and numerous pirated editions. So people in, you know, literary people know about the book. And, and there was riveting discussion before there was a huge clampdown. Of course, now it's less known to the younger generation. But then I was nearly banned from going to China. Um, But thanks to the help of the British Foreign Office, I have been able to go and visit my mother for two weeks a year.
0: And how much freedom do you have when you're in China to to do research as well as being able to, to see your mother Must be quite elderly
1: now. Well, over the years, the um, control has become tighter. At the beginning, I I was able to do research about Ambrostalget Cixi because I guess a lot of people, even in the ruling elite, particularly in the ruling elite, um, who are sympathetic, who identify with my views about Mao, and about the catastrophe Mao brought to the Chinese. And so I was given relatively good treatment, although my books are banned. But in the last few years, the control has become tighter and tighter. So I basically can only go into China in a kind of concealed bubble, so to speak. I have no contact with the public. I just go and see my mother and come out.
0: You write about what you call the astonishing discovery of a period of true democracy in 20th century China. That's 1913 to 1928. What was democratic China like? Would we recognize it from a tradition of modern democracy? Or do you mean something a bit different?
1: Well, um, actually, you, you can measure it by the standards of modern democracy. It had three elections, three general elections, one in 1913, one in 1918, one in 1923. And they produced a parliament, um, functioning parliament, and the presidents. And, of course, flawed, but, of course, I mean, democracy, even today in the West, is flawed in many ways, but in those days in China, there was a complete freedom of press, complete freedom of expression, and there was an independent legal system and of course, I mean, you know, corruption and so on, but it was functioning. So you can me- measure it. And also that was the, those were the years of tremendous creativity and artistic freedom. All the giants of modern Chinese literature and arts, and science, you know, whatever, all sorts of area, came from that period. This artistic freedom is often attributed to the so-called May 4th movement, which happened in 1919. But the May 4th movement was a student's demonstration. In fact, I often wondered what they had got to do with this student's demonstration. I mean, now I realized it's nothing to do with the with a student demonstration it's in fact all to do with the fact that china was a democracy in those years we produced this great hundred flowers blooming in those years and unfortunately the democratically elected Beijing government, there was a bribery, of course. I mean, you know, all sorts of problems. But there was the election, there was a the parliament, and all that was overthrown by Chiang Kai shek in 1928 with an army built by Soviet Russia.
0: What is your outlook for democracy in China now, or the desire? For it as a system, is isn't democratic itself. There's a bit of a spectrum here of thought, isn't there? One which says, well, that desire, other than in certain elites and intellectuals, has been largely extirpated. People are pretty much happy as long as their living standards uh, rise and they don't think too much about democracy. In another view that says, well, that's the way that the government and the party simply wish to shape the
1: argument. What do you feel when you, you visit your homeland? It's actually probably more difficult now to introduce democracy into China than it was 100 years ago, simply because of all these decades of first nationalist, which was very much Leninist rule, and then communist rule. That basically had changed a lot. Many people are afraid of the outcome of democracy now, and they are worried that China might disintegrate. Then, Would that be your view? There is certainly that danger. But I, through my studies in the early period, nearly two decades of democracy, I, I also feel that the Chinese are very sensible people. And there is, has always been a tradition of selecting the political elite through some fair competition. Because traditional Chinese elite were selected through these imperial exams that were open to all male, poor or richer, whatever family background. There was this tradition which explains partly how China transformed from monarchy to democracy peacefully without bloodshed. I mean, today, a lot of that has changed. And we also have to see how much resistance the the ruling elites put up against this process, how determined they are. And of course, there is a democratic
0: challenge going on as we speak, and it's on the streets of Hong Kong. How do you estimate what that sort of form of, of resistance? And it's been, it's been going on now for, for some time. It doesn't seem to be there's clearly not going to be a very quick solution to it. What's the problem that it poses for Beijing?
1: Beijing can't suppress it, it can't do a Tiananmen, and because of Hong Kong's special status, its economic status. If it does a tenement, Hong Kong would lose its free trade status and Beijing would lose gigantic sums of money. The soft power from Beijing mainly comes with money. It really can't afford, I think, to lose that gigantic sums of money. So that poses a big problem of how to handle this special case in Hong Kong. And so I think they're still figuring out. And I, of course, would like that they register how Hong Kong people are still rejecting the rule of communism. And I hope it will make China less communist, so to speak. Isn't that precisely
0: the fear that in Beijing, that if they let this run and concede, that they are conceding to a system which fundamentally challenges
1: the grip of the, the party in mainland China. Well I think some people some people seem, seem to be stuck in the past and still hang on to the ideal of communism. I mean, people of my generation, we grew up in communist China and there was this thing about believing in the ideology and the current leaders of my generation. And I think some of them got stuck in that mentality, but far from all of them. I mean, China, in fairness, in many ways is not a communist state. I mean, economically, the private ownership, which is the most important uh, standard it allows a huge private sector and in many ways it, that's I mean that's not communist I mean in its controlling mechanisms it is but in many other ways it's not I think some people are trying to turn the clock back and make China more communist, more like the bad old days. I think they won't succeed. I think the country has changed fundamentally since Mao's death. It has opened up to the outside world. It has numerous connections with the outside world, and all it has raised people's aspirations. All that is against, works against winding the clock back and making China more communist. So I'm sort of basically still optimistic about the future of China.
0: Tell me, how do you think Western
1: politicians, media policymakers, what,
0: what is most commonly misunderstood about China? What do we miss?
1: I think maybe one thing that people talk about the clash of civilization, and I, I totally disagree with that one. I studied Empress Dowager she wrote her biography, and she was the woman, the imperial concubine who opened up China. She was the first modernizer. I was astonished when I was writing the book to see that when she first sent envoys from China to the West, how immediately they clicked and how immediately the Chinese and the West, there, there seem to be no huge barrier and how easily people accept each other's ideas. Um, so I don't think the Chinese civilization is kind of fundamentally opposed to Western civilization. And I think it's, it's the fact that China claims itself to be communist. I think that's the problem. And communist is not a Chinese idea. And has the role of of women changed? Obviously, the context has changed since you were writing
0: about your fascinating and very diverse three sisters in the book. But when you look
1: at the role of women in China today, how do you rate their position? The thing is that the three sisters were from that period, the the period China was a democracy, was a period that they were basically thriving. They were able to to become these political figures in their own rights. I mean, that big period of freedom, of free thinking, of anything is possible, is no longer there. So I don't know how things will turn out.
0: And given that, what would your advice be to budding writers in China who may have heard of your Work or still be able to access it uh, somehow, or indeed to Chinese writers outside the country, from wild swans to this delve back, further back into the last century in China. What would your advice to them be?
1: Yeah, I, I always refrain from giving advice because everybody's situation is different. Uh, your freedom to write, your circumstances. Uh, I can just say, you know, follow your heart and your mind and just, um, just do what you're passionate about. To be a writer is not easy and you have to be passionate about it. Um, I think you so, said it was
0: the most dangerous profession. Well,
1: that was in my days in China in the nineteen fifties, sixties, and seventies under Mao, and nearly all writers were condemned, you know, sent to the gulag, driven to suicide, etc. I mean, today it's no longer so. But of course, people still write in China with lots of inhibition, with a lot of problems. I think you have to write what you feel is the truth. I always try to write as truthfully to what I have found out, what I believe as possible. Yung Chang,
0: thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Economist Asks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And to keep up with developments in Hong Kong and across China, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.